and gentlemen, welcome to The Person in 2020. I am still unfortunately such a person. Joining me today is Abdullah, another person in 2020. Abdullah, how are you? I'm good, Kelly. How are you doing? I'm doing good in spite of the year that we're in. Yeah, it's been a it's been an odd ball of a year, hasn't it? <laughs> it's uh it's something. At least enough to warrant this podcast, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah, speaking of that, how is how's 2020 been for you? 2020. So I think it'd be easier for me just to go through the series of events I went through. So uh, I work in the film industry as like camera operator from production assistant to whatever I can get my hands on. And then I also run my own film production company on the side. So at the beginning of the year, it was business as normal, working on commercials, features, gigs with my own production company, uh, starting up new movies. Uh, we actually started up a new web series and then everything goes as normal. We start getting, you know, those beginning scares. We're more timid with our planning. And then all of a sudden Tom Hanks gets COVID. Like, I think I remember the day exactly March 13th. I was working on a uh, ghost nation or like ghost hunters. And the producer came to us running guys, this is real. Tom Hanks has COVID. <laughs> he has Corona. <laughs> and from that point on, all the restrictions got slammed on us. It was well warranted. But yeah, ever since then, it was kind of like same story as a lot of other people quarantining. I thought during quarantine, I could get a lot of self-development done. And I think like a lot of people, I struggled with that coming out of quarantine sometime in June, July. Uh, just trying to find work again and right now I'm working a job outside of the industry and so it's been it's been definitely a year of change for sure and I think for the good and the bad definitely I know for me I thought yeah I'll be really productive this year too with all my extra time but one thing I found was instead of really getting to those projects as much as I would have hoped originally I was distracted by like new movies I want to catch up on and YouTube content. What kind of distracted you in those moments? Distractions. Hmm. Uh, there's director Steven Bernstein. He's a uh, well-known, he's won an Oscar. Um, I think he's done white chicks. <laughs> he's a director of that movie. And <laughs> I saw an Instagram video of him saying that, um, you know, a lot of writers and directors complaining to him about like, kind of doing similar things or people feel like they're wasting their time but he put it in a way where he's like I'm falling back in love with cinema again I'm falling back in love with movies they give me strength um they they give me strength they make me feel not lonely and so here's a new way or rekindled my love for cinema and so I kind of had a similar experience with that so I wouldn't necessarily say like I did binge watch a few series. I watched The Last Airbender again. That was a big thing. That's I, funny, me too. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad they put it back on. I haven't seen it since I was, I was really young. And then a couple other shows I wanted to catch up on. So yeah, it was definitely catch up. I like to look at it, instead of being unproductive, it was just, I think, you know, R&R that was well needed. Because like throughout the whole year, I know myself, like, I give myself these little breaks. Sometimes I only have one day off a week or sometimes none. And it was just like a well-deserved moment. I think not just individually, but like for society as a whole saying that, hey, our health and well-being is more important than the economy. Like mental health. I know I got to work on that during 
quarantine or in doing things I love to do and like rediscovering uh, hobbies and things like that. So I did struggle with being unproductive. Like my sleep routine was ruined. <laughs> I did gain the quarantine 15, as they say, like everyone else. So now I'm trying to shed it off. But yeah, I mean, it was a spiritual, like for me, uh, Ramadan was during uh, the whole quarantine phase. And that was really interesting. Instead of like going to the mosque to pray every every night in uh, in group of like hundreds, it was all night at home alone. Um, sometimes with family, sometimes on my own. But it was like a different kind of connection with God in that sense. So it was definitely different. I wouldn't say it was a waste, like a lot of a lot of the unproductive habits during quarantine. Sure, the free time really makes or breaks a lot of people. It just it's so open that it makes some people use the time better and it, it just hurts a lot of other people, right? They say that, uh, is it boredom is the devil's playground or something like that? Something like that. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. So that's good to hear. I'm glad that you were productive and you made the most of it. I, I could say I did too. I just maybe, <laughs> maybe lament <laughs> some of the time that I spent watching whatever it is that I may have enjoyed, but well, I binged it all day long instead of just balancing that. But yeah, it's it's definitely been good for some R&R. How else, you were mentioning that this has changed your prayer routine, the way that you worship. How else has this changed your community? So for Muslims in general, most mosques close down and uh, they still all closed to this day, some of them. Some opened back up. And with like mosques, I think it's really high risk there because when you're prostrating, you're putting your nose and your mouth to the ground. Like other people have been in that spot doing that all day uh, when you pray. So it's like a high risk environment for like uh, viruses and things like that. So yeah, a lot of the mosques shut down. I used to go to mosque uh, or masjid every Friday for the Jama prayer, which is kind of like Christians going to church on Sunday. We go and we get, uh, we call it khutbah in Arabic, but it's kind of like a lecture before the prayer every week. And so that kind of got erased community-wise. A lot of leaders, faith leaders went to social media, started using technology to kind of deliver those sermons, but still the, play the prayers were with family or, or they just weren't there. So that... Honestly, those day prayers, those Friday prayers were, are the thing I miss the most. I still haven't been to one since maybe March, which feels really weird. And during Ramadan, like I mentioned, during Ramadan, uh, there's Tarawih prayers every night, basically from 10 p.m. to around 1 or 2 a.m., there's prayers going on, group prayers, and those weren't there during quarantine. So it was an odd I think I think the community has handled it really well through prayer. I think a lot of people got got really sad that those things were were missing. But I think like through technology we've been able to like do substitutes and things like that. Sure. So do you feel that there are different sects of Islam that have responded differently to this? You know, about the different sects, I don't really know because I don't like delegate myself to a sect like in traditional islamic law it's prohibited to like make a sect but a lot of people will say i'm sunni i'm shia i'm this i'm that just to kind of like 
aligned to a political perspective or you know going back to the the origins of sunni versus shia it's like comes down to you know who's going to be the next caliph that's where things get different so as far as different sects go i i believe shia they don't do tarawih so i don't think that was missing for them but i've i'm on uh i'm friends on social media with both sunni shia people and it seems like everyone's kind of having the same all the muslims having the same problems like they can't pray together not that they can't pray together but they can't meet in public and pray together and there's a huge risk for that yeah but i think like this whole virus has helped the muslim community also in different ways like for example we've discovered a lot of prophetic traditions the prophet muhammad peace be upon him when it comes to viruses and plagues he would say don't let anyone get into the city and don't let anyone get out. And so like we start to discover these practices and habits that apply for plagues and and pandemics that he used to do and that just for, for me personally that helped me like get into prophetic tradition a lot and to uh rekindle connection with the myself and my prophet and then my god as well. So I don't know if that answers your question completely but <laughs> or at all but yeah i'm not sure about the sex to be honest i don't i don't classify my, classify myself as any belonging to any one of them sure that's interesting i do meet a lot of christians that are non-denominational as well i would think that there's probably a fundamental difference in the way that because of course christians couldn't go to church this year either for the most part mm -hmm. but i think that there's something a little different about knowing that you are in a country that reflects your beliefs and that you can have access to and see and be around other like-minded people anywhere that you do get to go and i i would imagine that creates kind of a a bigger difference and maybe a bigger discrepancy in the feeling of loss when you don't get to pray with your people yeah i mean definitely lost that connection like growing up in Pennsylvania, uh, the Muslim community is not large here at all. And so the being amongst other Muslims was really unique and special and rare. Uh, about 99% of the people I knew were not Muslim. And so praying together was doing things in a community was really important. And simple things like for, for Muslims, we have to pray five times a day. It's a requirement. It's an order from God for us. And like, what am I going to do? This was an issue for me growing up. What am I going to do while I'm in school and now it's time for prayer? And these Americans, I'm American, but you know, non-Muslim Americans, they don't know what the heck I'm going to be doing if I go into a corner over there and start like prostrating and start saying Allahu Akbar. Like, they're probably going to get terrified. <laughs> so yeah. um, it's, it's kind of returned to that similar fear. I do have like anxiety praying in public now, still to this day. And while in a Muslim country, it would just be a normal thing. And there's mosques everywhere and you can go do that. And there's prayer rooms everywhere. You can go do that however you like. Yeah. And so like what this quarantine has done is, or this uh, pandemic has done is just separate. It stopped those groupings with uh, similar people and made being Muslim 
actually just a, a little more lonely than it was before. It was pretty lonely before for me, at least living in Pennsylvania, but now it's even more so. <laughs> I can imagine. So how do you think that the political climate this year has affected you? Because it is an election year and it's no secret that there are religious alignments with political groups. So getting that things are so divided and so heated and the xenophobia is quite high and I'd, I'd assume that you'd agree. What has it been like? Um, I mean, there's just been a lot of, I know when it comes to myself, I'm just speaking for myself and probably not the vast majority of Muslims in this country. But there's been a lot of generalizations, I think, against me on, on, from both sides. For example, the left will assume I'm with them because the right is against me or they'll, they, or I'm a minority or something like that. And then the right will typically assume that I'm with the left because again, I'm a minority or something like that. And they think, um, you know, I've just heard some crazy things from, from both sides, which is why I've tried to stay as neutral as, as possible because I, like politically, I feel like there's no ally to me. Like, I don't know who I'm gonna vote for. And every year I've, I could vote, I voted Green Party. And I think I might do it again this year. Like Joe Biden's party, the, in his, VP's stance on Israel and the same thing with Trump and his stance on immigrants. I don't know, as like a Muslim, I don't know how to responsibly cast my vote. Um, one way or the other, it's gonna, I feel like it's gonna be against my Muslim brothers and sisters around the world. And I feel like, again, I'm speaking for myself, but I think my confusion applies to a lot of my Muslim friends. And it's really just, and I think it's not just with Muslims, but with everyone in this country. The political climate has just really divided the nation. It's divided friends, families, things like that. So it it feels like like I, I was born in Cleveland. I've lived in the United States 99.9% of my life. I do consider myself American, and it, but it feels like I still don't belong. Does that make sense? Like it feels like I don't belong into a political group, political group or anything. Maybe that's for the better or the worse, but yeah, uh, I, I, too. I mean, it could be for the better or worse. Yeah, because it it does seem that, and this is something I've discussed with other guests. But my take is that this is a pseudo Christian theocracy, and if you aren't part of that majority, you're going to feel other in some way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not really the melting pot that we claim it to be or that we console ourselves by letting ourselves think that it is right because i mean the first amendment has failed so many religious minorities i mean do you have any examples of that and maybe even some from this year i i do have examples from that i mean in in high school i tried starting M, uh, M, msa a muslim student association and one of our requests was uh, let us pray during school hours. And it was based off the First Amendment, you know, the freedom of religion. And the, the school board just wouldn't like, oh, that takes time. He's going to be out of class for what, 10 minutes to pray? They wouldn't allow it. And I'm not the only one. Like uh, I hear similar stories like this across the country. So that was in high school. But now more recently, 
I don't think it's like as obvious. Like if if that happened today, like that was maybe 2010 that that instance when I was in high school happened. If I don't think it would happen today as as the climate is now, but I think like the the fear of being Muslim in public still exists, if that makes sense. So yeah, I can't think of a specific example recently of when I felt like my first amendment wasn't being protected, but I do, I still feel afraid in a way, but fear, I think doesn't mean that that's like an internal thing. I don't know what the actual situation may be. Sure. But so, so you, you don't feel that the right or the left are, one's not worse than the other when it comes to supporting religious minorities supporting the Arab world in any way? There's an Arabic expression, and this is an Arabic, not a Muslim expression. It's just Arab culture that uh, one is worse than the other. They're both worse than each other. Sorry. This is, it's that they're both worse than each other. They're eternally not better <laughs> than the other. So you can always find like, okay, but this side you know, they, they support Israel or whatever they support, not just Israel, but Zionism specifically. And then this side, you know, won't, is like blatantly racist against Muslims and immigrants and things like that. And you just can't, there's like no lesser of the two evils, if that makes sense. I don't feel like the right or the left does. Really? I, that's interesting because I yeah. think there's a divide on the left because there are the Zionist liberals, right? And then there are pro-Palestine liberals. And then there are people who think that you shouldn't be able to. There is no context in which it's acceptable to criticize Islam or religious minorities or every religion. And then there are those that say we need to be able to make distinctions and be intellectually honest in their own terms or whatever it is. Do you, do you feel that divide? I think there's that divide on the left. I also think it's there on the right as well. Nice thing about Pennsylvania, living here. I don't know if it's nice. It is nice, actually. You know, it's a, it's a swing state. So there's no, like, but I have friends and acquaintances in both aisles. And there are conservatives who feel one way about Israel and there are who feel another way. I shouldn't say conservatives, but Trump supporters, because you can be conservative, but not support Trump. And then um, there are conservatives who or sorry, messed up again. <laughs> there are Trump supporters who will say, you know, look what the like, they'll be totally anti-Islam. And there's others who will try to look at it in an honest light. Like, for example, I have friends in the Marines who spent time in Iraq and Afghanistan who who do take it like that, but they're Trump supporters. Not all of them, but some. But you, I think you're right. There is a, there, I mean, it's not black and white. I think that's the biggest thing. Like we're talking left, we're talking right, but there's like, in reality, that's, I think the, you know, the, the really blue and the really, the really red are just very rare. And like most people are shades of purple, if that makes sense. For sure. And I, I wouldn't speak to the way that these conversations manifest or the way any one group of people might interact when meeting a Muslim interpersonally. But in terms of platform, it seems like there's at least some consciousness on the left about the religious freedom, further realizing the First Amendment and having those protections and uh, 
battling xenophobia where it doesn't seem to be even a talking point on the right. I'm not seeing a distinct faction of right-wingers who are like, we need to be fighting against xenophobia and anti-immigration theory and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I've, I've personally witnessed that from the right, actually. I've, I've like, you know, what you might stereotype as a typical really right-wing person uh my one of my friends goes to church every sunday typical white christian lives in the country and he's really adamant on like learning about faith and protect interfaith and protecting theology and he votes he's gonna vote he told me he's voting for trump so i've i've witnessed that i don't and that's again this is just my personal experience he may be one of a million i'm not sure um, but he could be one of many. So I think, you know, this is something one of my mentors told me when it comes to like dealing with people when you think they're the other. You're never really going to get to know people by just like talking to them like this, like here, you and me. Like we can talk all day, but until you can sit down and have a meal with someone and like live with them, that's when you can try to empathize and understand and kind of see that gray instead of things in black and white. And that's what he did. Um, my mentor, he worked for the Washington Post as a journalist. And that's what I've tried to do with my art as well. So yeah, does that, <laughs> I forget the original, the original uh, cue for that. Well, yeah, it's, you're making this uh, interpersonal kind of story. We're, we're talking about how people might right what happens if they are together and i'm just saying that i sure. think there's some level of responsibility for both parties to present ideas instead of leave them in the gray and say well you'll just have to meet us to see how we feel and you can't make any reasonable conclusions about us because hey we're all a bunch of individuals when really i think there is a responsibility for the right to create their own dialogue much like the left has and create their factions and say well this is a real issue and here's how we feel about it. And here's what we plan to do about it and have that kind of conversation because if they don't, and the only thing that gets propagated is policies that are anti-immigrant, the Muslim ban Trump enacted, these kinds of foreign policies, Zionist aid and whatever it might be, you're only left to assume one thing. And so I, I can't imagine giving the benefit of the doubt to a party. I can to any individual, of course. Mm -hmm. But to a party, no, I can't. And if you align yourself with that party, I think you have to take some responsibility for what it means. Like, you wouldn't say, I don't want people to think that I believe in the Quran just because I'm a Muslim. Mm -hmm. But that would be a fair assumption. Right, right. I, I totally understand what you're saying. I agree to you on, on some level. I, I would also like to see that from, like, Trump's administration is, like, some clarification, like, you know, we... <laughs> we just to like just set it straight you know we don't we don't hate muslims we welcome muslims to this country we we may be concerned about i don't know <laughs> this is so wrong to say we may be concerned about national security from other muslims i don't know like to be honest with you i know some muslims who are voting for trump and the reason like okay for example i worked with this uh actually refugee uh, from Iraq. He's Muslim. And he's actually now, he, he was a refugee from Iraq 10 years ago or uh, 15 years ago. And 
now he's a caseworker, or he was before the, the ban happened. He was a caseworker for Syrian refugees. And not just Syrians, but other from different all different countries, but he mostly dealt with Syrian refugees, Syrian Muslim refugees. This was actually during Trump's first run. And he told me he agrees with Trump national because he felt like, you know, it could be a national security issue. He he feel he understood that Trump could be scared or the Americans are scared. And he likes the conservatism uh, of that, of what he was bringing forward, you know, compared to what the pre- previous administration did with its social reforms and things like that. So like, I, I agree with you. Like I, like to me personally, I think the right needs to come forward and set a few things straight. It's weird, you know, uh, Islam, like I, I like to separate Muslims from the religion of Islam. Muslims are just adherents of the religion. For me, like the religion is like a really pure source, whereas Muslims can be led astray, kind of like, you know, anyone in any religion or any following, you know, people are imperfect. Um, but you have to consider that uh, Muslims are the most diverse religious uh, group in the entire world, from Asians to Africans to Arabs to um, to whites to blacks to to it's like the most diverse, the most languages, the most cultures in any single religion. So when you say Muslims, you're actually talking about like a billion plus people of all different backgrounds who have all different cultures and political uh, alignments. So it's hard to say. Sure. And you think that that's more true of Islam than Christianity in terms of those uh, diverse factors? I, I think they're facts. I think you can, you know, look up the Pew polls and see, you know, uh, the population of people who follow the religion of Islam compared to people who follow Christianity. That's weird because I had the uh, some kind of global census index suggesting that there were t- about 2.1 billion Christians and about 1.8 billion Muslims. Yeah. That's, does that sound about right? Yeah. Yeah, no doubt, especially, you know, for these two, for those two religions, really the three Abrahamic religions, they're extremely diverse, obviously, and there's no way to encapsulate any of them. There is some commonality that would make them all agree to that kind of identification, right? What, what identification are you talking about? Whether it be Muslim, Christian, Jew, whatever it may be. I'm sorry, I don't follow. So for anyone to say I am one of these things, and it's 1.8, 2.1 billion people saying that, there must be some through line, the commonality that is true of all that makes them agree to that identifier, right? Yeah, like, there's, there, yeah, yeah, that uh, three Abrahamic faiths believe in the single or monotheistic God, yeah. Really, do you think that that's a, pretty much it as far as the commonality goes? No, I mean, there's there's so much more from culture to, to tradition to all three faiths share the story of Moses and Noah and and Adam, similar, not the same exact version, but, you know, similar course of events, similar themes, like the seven deadly sins from Christianity definitely would be accepted by the majority of Muslims. There's, there's more in common than, than not. Definitely, even down to stories and characters and direct conversations about the same events. 
Yeah. So it is a shame that the, the world has turned out this way in modernity all, all this time later when there's so much in common. Yeah, I, th I think that's just the human tragedy is people looking at each other as the, the other. And it's, it's easier to be afraid of people than it is to try to love them, if that makes sense. I know that sounds corny, but it's easier to just say, you know, you're going outside, um, you have a neighbor that moved in from a different country and you don't, you don't know if he speaks your same language or you, you don't know anything about him. And it's easier to just like nod and like just hop in your car and go to work than it is to like make cookies and meet him and <laughs> a really painful, awkward conversation because you don't know the same language, but still really try to get to know and each other and empathize. It's easier to, to just run away. Sure, and it's no secret why there's so much anti-Muslim sentiment in America. And it obviously follows 9-11 and the public interest in what well, was really a turning point, not only in politics, but in cinema. And you, I think uh, we, we might have both uh, learned a little something about this, but before 9-11, before like our movie bad guys were British and Russian. Mm -hmm. And then after the, after the fact, they were Islamic in, in most cases. So yeah. my hot take on this is that you don't get to have an opinion about what Islam is, its threat, or things like that if you don't understand the foreign policy leading up to 9-11 from the West. Would you agree with that? Can you, can you explain further? Sure. So with, if all you think is that we were minding our own business here in America, and then one day some people drove some planes into our beloved buildings and it's because they just hate us so much for no reason and they just start whatever you're filling in the blank with without understanding that action to be a retaliation of the foreign policy we had in the Arab world. Mm -hmm. I don't think we can reasonably make these assumptions and create this uh, geopolitical issue of the way we treat Muslims. Right. I mean, it's uh it's pretty common knowledge for Arabs that America has been screwing around in the area for decades prior. Not just Americans, but there's a whole there's a whole you can, you could study for years and years, decades about imperialism and its effects on the Middle East, similar to what happened to Africa, but different. Of course, they're different areas. Yeah, I, like the cinema is such a fascinating thing because it's such a minority voice cinema. A, because it takes a lot of money to make a movie. B, it takes a lot of status, not just money, but status, skill, years of being groomed as a storyteller and filmmaker and technician and whatever to put out a story. And only limited people are allowed to act, not are allowed, but, you know, had easier access to those kind of resources. So we have learned. So we have learned, yes. <laughs> so there, there was certainly a, you know, story, story, weird storytelling that happened that kind of repainted events for Americans when it came to like 9-11 and events after. Yeah, I distinctly remember the first time thinking about this fact was just like the gratuitous American flag in the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. Oh my God! Yeah, and then you know what I'm talking um, about? <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and then, like yeah. 
it's just this strange shot that it doesn't really make sense in the sequence, but Spider-Man just arrives on this building with the American flag waving behind him. It just fills the frame as he runs through it and then continues slinging his web or whatever. And that's a fair song. Oh, yes. Yeah, I, yeah I, I remember for sure now. And then they also did something similar with Black, Black Hawk Down. Black Hawk Down, I believe, if I can remember the director's commentary, right? Ridley Scott started filming Black Hawk Down before 9-11. And then 9-11 happened. And they made a lot of, like, pushes to, to really get it out there. But that doesn't make sense because Black Hawk Down is in a completely different area of the world. But here you are. And it's one of my favorite war films, ironically. It's just, I don't know. I think it's stupid, but I also think it's good filmmaking. Like, it, it just didn't make sense to put out this American military movie and, like, to put it, like, really push for it to come out after 9-11 happened and when this is a story about a completely different circumstance. I think the terrorist group in, in that situation was, a, was, like, a Muslim or classified as, like, a Muslim group or something. I don't consider those people Muslims, but anyways... Um, and they really pushed that out. I don't know if you remember that, do you? It's like Actually, I never watched that film. I was never a big war movie kind of guy. Oh, I was a huge war movie fan. <laughs> you well, should yeah. check it out. It's a pretty, it's a good movie. It's just stupid, if that makes sense. I, I don't want to insult any, any veterans or anything like that. I, I apologize. For, it's probably not the best way to put it, but it is like, it's silly. And it's the depiction of what happened. Even when I was at like peak alt-right conservative country boy in my high school years, I just didn't even really vibe on the war films. I just thought it was like so strangely mythologized and like masculinized in a way that just I kind of felt somewhat insulted <laughs> in the way that it lended itself to violence in this way that was like unnecessary and always pro-American to an extent like because I, I even knew a little bit about storytelling at the time and there was a mm -hmm. part of me that was like yeah i like that they know that we should be pro-america and make that kind of movie but then i was also at the same time thinking you know i just watched a video essay about how villains should be a little more complex and i have no idea why we're fighting them in this movie what mm -hmm. they did and so that was probably the beginning of my conflict but um, right yeah, I I never have, and and at this point, I just like the anti-war movies, like um, Full Metal Jacket or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Full Metal Jacket, classic masterpiece film. The The Pianist is another good. It's yeah, a, that one's the really, Holocaust. That one's more honest in a way mm -hmm. because it doesn't uh, create heroes out of anyone. It just mm -hmm. tells the events of someone surviving, and that's really what most of war really tends to be it's no one's it's no one soldier's decision to create that conflict or to put boots on the ground so I yeah kinda, i kind of like it for that reason yeah and most most people in the military will tell you like you know it's not like support roles in the military kind of count more than like these warrior roles i mean they still matter a lot in warfare warriors but like support and logistics and all that like like sanctions and all this stuff that's kind of what 
a lot of conflict is and is really about rather than like than the exciting stuff we always see on the screen. And so, yeah, I, I sometimes watching these movies like American Sniper, watching that, I really question why the filmmakers and in that case specific Clint Eastwood decided to like put things the way he did in, in that movie. Well, Clint Eastwood's life now spans one third of the entirety of American history. So <laughs> quite literally, I'm pretty sure the math is right on that. And I just don't, in some, ex some respects, I expect an old dog to learn new tricks in a way that mm. I don't ever want to excuse like elderly discrimination because everyone should be accountable for being a dick. But right. it's not surprising that that film exists or any of them like it because the the propaganda machine runs deep and if that wasn't part of it then it's certainly part of why i don't care for those movies now yeah you're in, you and i are on the same on the same page i just think black hawk down was was just a cool thing <laughs> i haven't seen it in years i'll probably have to see it again but yeah, yeah I, I agree with you i, I definitely like the anti-war rather than action kind of war movies well, you used up your one plug on Black Hawk Down. I'm sorry, but now you're just going to create rentals for the filmmaker. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure most people have seen it. They probably have. I'm just, yeah. I just wasn't one of them for some reason. But, <laughs> so given that we can definitely agree that imperialism bad, we are currently stationed in the Arab world, we have our military bases, we have our interventions and coups and running guns and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. my question is, what do we do now? And not in the way that you should be a foreign political expert that can give me a map right now, but like, what are the overarching concepts that we need to be considering? And, and also, do people around you think about this a lot? Um, gonna answer the second question first. I know people around like, when is the last time that you considered we're at war? Like you ask any American, are we at war? People are confused. Are we? I don't, I don't know the answer. Are we still at war with in Afghanistan and in Iraq? And then most people have just come to, I feel like put it in the back of their minds or just like, I don't know. Do, do you think about that daily? I do, but I'm clear. I mean, for anyone who has seen my Facebook, I'm clearly thinking about things. And <laughs> right. Okay. So you can't, but like, let's ask our, our average Joe Schmo, you know, I, I don't think people like just ever think of that or realize we're at war. No, um, I, think, I think it's both though, because there's so many that don't know, but they'll be very adamant about their answer. Yes or no. They'll be like, no, we're not. And you could be like, mm -hmm. we are. And they'll be like, nope, we're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so that's I, I and then regarding what we can be doing again like you said i'm not a foreign expert but i do know one thing all right and that one thing is if you want to change something if you want to change the world around you if you want to change your situation whatever you got to do you just got to start looking inwards first and that comes like you know nice looping back to quarantine and, and all that uh, something i really realized is uh the only thing you can change is yourself really as corny as that sounds but once you start you know i think we as americans 
when it comes to the Arab world and, and Muslims, we gotta start looking at okay, so how can I how can I be a better listener to other people, other perspectives? How can I educate myself more? So when it comes time for me to vote, I can make a better vote. I can be more politically active when it, you know, how can I take care of my own health, my own spirituality, so that when Muslims or Christians or whoever are talking about these things that I can relate to it or I can, I can connect and, you know, how can I diversify my circle of people that I know? I have a Christian friend who visits mosques and different, different religious organizations, like have, have a lot of Americans even been to a mosque. So the best thing we can do is just individually each try to to like really find dig deep within our tr ourselves to find truths to work on ourselves and i think that's just going to have an effect on the world around us um and i think on the external level what the united states can do for the middle east in general is just get the hell out of there <laughs> we have too much to worry about in here and yeah I mean, is it going to be bloody there? Is it going to be terrible? Yes, but maybe, you know, they have the Arabs have a lot of dictators over their heads. Um, like in some places, you can't even criticize the king or the or whoever's in charge. It's illegal. They'll throw you in jail. But that's like to keep preventing these, the growth that needs to happen there. Like, you know, what happened in Syria specifically or to like i mean that's different i don't know man it's so complex you got russia involved in that all sorts of things what are what are we supposed to do i just think we should just get our noses out of there um and let things work themselves out let those people fight their fight that they need to fight and it's going to be bloody it's going to be ugly but maybe it needs to happen sure so the first part of that answer is very uh jordan peterson-esque i must say is it <laughs> Jordan Peterson has this idea that we can't begin to try to solve the problems of the world or have a political opinion of any kind until we have worked on ourselves enough to know that we are complete or like, in his case, very specifically, that we've at least made our bed every day or something. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I've listened to Jordan Peterson before, but I haven't heard him say that, but I agree with the man. I, I have not, I have not been the greatest Peterson fan in that I mean, I definitely don't make my bed. I'm looking at it right now. It's a terrible mess. But, <laughs> but I think that I still have a few valid opinions that can't be made better or worse by the shape of my sheets. And so I think that there is some level of responsibility of people to right. recognize that there is no stopping point for self-improvement. So you can't just wait till you're an old wise person to finally be valid enough to have these opinions because the world goes on and there's things we still have to do, you know, as, as a global. Right. Well, I think what maybe he's trying to say and what maybe him and I, I don't know. Okay. Well, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, it's not just that the self-development, but like when you do work on yourself and your behaviors, like it, it change, it does change your action. Like you still have to get involved, and, you know, you can still hold opinions and you can still do things, but, um huh, give me a minute 
I, I agree with you. You can, you know, you can, you can still be involved and do things. You don't have to wait till you're old, but I think like it's just constantly striving to, to better yourself. And that's going to enable you to like influence other people and help other people out and be, and be a leader and just be like 1% better every day and make like those 1% better choices every day. I think that's just gonna, if we all imagine if everyone focuses on that as a whole, um, what strides we can make for the world in general. Like for example, if everyone worked hard to um, minimize their uh, carbon footprint, that would, that would be really helpful for our planet. That sure would. There, there's no denying that. I, I only disagree with Peterson in the sense that these might be mutually exclusive, that one precedes the other. And, and my prescription would be that you need to improve both and be aware of both. I agree with you on that. So the other issue is, let's say we do that. Let's say we become more individually concerned and we pull out of the Middle East and we don't intervene, we don't do any of that. There's still several issues left behind, I think. There's potential power vacuums. There's the way that we leave, the way that we still support Israel and give them resources. And that mm -hmm. is indirectly aggressive, even if we don't have boots on the ground, right? So because we're mm -hmm. not, because we are a global community, it's not realistic to become an isolationist, isolationist nation. True, true. So we do still have to continue doing business around the world. So there's a lot of questions left after that. So that's kind of my thought. That's kind of why I think that this needs to be more than just, well, let's see who we meet and let's see what they think before we, I mean, we can make reasonable conclusions that they either haven't thought about this or don't consider it uh, important enough to the degree that they would have some kind of mindset about what to do, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And especially if your only administrative task in the case of Trump is to just outright ban several Muslim nations, it, it can't be reasonably discerned that his supporters are, are uh, against that in any meaningful way. Because it, it means that, yeah, I don't like it, but it's not enough to divert my interest in the potential tax savings or whatever. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's, uh, I agree with you, there's, like, you know, pulling out the create power vacuum, there's never an easy answer to anything, I mean, like, no, for me, not. that's, like, that's, I guess my whole takeaway, I mean, I don't know yeah. why I'm doing 20 episodes, and I could just say, everything's very complicated, and just, <laughs> just <leave it> that. <laughs> well, you know, what isn't complicated, though, is, uh, again, coming back to the end, individual power is what you what is what is in your control and how are you going to treat the people you meet every day how are you going to treat that muslim down the street from you how are you going to treat that christian how are you going to treat that atheist how are you going to treat the you know whatever not just religion how are you going to treat that gay couple down the street like for me you know homosexuality is against my religion but like how am i gonna in, the, in this pluralist society how am i going to treat other people that's that's in my control i i genuinely believe like you you focus on doing that then the bigger picture just kind of solves itself because you can't really control you, there's 
I think we think we as a country can control the big picture when it comes to nations and empires, civilization, whatever. But in reality, you know, there's, it's like butterfly effect. For example, like COVID, look what it did to us. If I bet you, if you gathered all of COVID, its material mass from the entire earth, it wouldn't come up to like a spoonful of salt. And it's, uh, it's shattered. <laughs> it's shattered our, our culture. It's shattered our civilization. So I think, you know, focusing on what you can do um, can help relieve the anxiety of like that complexity. Does that make sense? For sure. It's not a question, I guess. Uh, because what I, what I think is that having these broader understandings informs how we treat people. Mm-hmm because everyone can defer to a basic sense of civility. They know their social cues and you can say hello and run through the motions with this Muslim, this Christian, this whoever, but there's a way that you're doing it. And there's this, this qualitative factor involved in how you did it and the micro expressions and your body language. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of this is informed by your beliefs about things. And if you, if you fail, if you think the only thing that you need to do is perform kindness, I don't think you'll ever really reach it because you, you have to have some level of understanding of what these, what these people believe, how can they be grouped and not grouped together in a belief system? What is the state of things? What is our policies? What did, what did we do first? What did we do as a response? And the, all of that plays into a lot of things like people, not reading into certain measures that might be on the ballot because it's not famous like the presidency. Right. In LA, we have Measure J going on, which would help a lot of minority communities, but who knows about it? Who's going to read into it? And mm-hmm. why does it matter if they think the only important thing is performing civility? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, you can be polite to people, but like you said, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean much. Hmm. Kelly, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a really messy, messy world we live in. I think this is what happens when you, and it's been like, there's always been immigrants for, for the whole of human civilization, like societies and cultures and people, tribes, um, not just immigrants, but all this, this whole diversity clash and things like that. There's always been the other and I think that's just gonna, it's always gonna be like like that. But I think like here in the United States, it's probably maybe the messiest, maybe like the, like we always compare the United States to the Roman empire, right? But they didn't seem to have a problem with it like we did. <laughs> you know what I mean? This well, whole, to be fair, did they have that melting pot? Yeah, maybe, uh, I'm, not, I'm not a historian. I, I love history and I'm a huge geek about it. I think they didn't. I think, I think my point is like for the, look, it seems like to me, I may be wrong, but like for the first time in civilization's history that people are not only mixing with people who look like them, like all the time, like here in the United States, there's just, like you said, it's a melting pot and it's like psychology proves that you're more likely to get along better with people who look like you, act like you, smell like you, eat food like you do. How do we make this easier? I I don't know. <laughs> Just uh, you know, being polite is I think 
though it may not mean mean much, it's step number one. And step number two is making friends. And I mean, this thing, I think also naturally solves itself. People fall in love. They get married across cultures and religions. Not just that, but like, you know, mentorships happen, relationships build. I think maybe that's it, that we should just try to seek relationships with different people, like quality relationships, not just like those uh, shallow, superficial, really polite ones. For sure. I have to agree that there is going to be a lot of problems solved for people that just simply do that. And it's not reasonable to think that this will all be solved or everyone's going to be a political and philosophical thinker. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not a reasonable expectation. But I think that we can circumvent a lot of the need for that and a lot of this extracurricular cognitive work just by changing our education system, just by fully realizing the ways that we fail as a nation. And once that work gets done, it has an exponential effect because you can then teach young people as they grow up what these basic ideas so they don't have to become so self-involved in this kind of research and things that just concern them that isn't reasonable to expect people to do because you kind of shrink that gap and then I think both of the the interpersonal effect that you're talking about and the overarching philosophical component that I'm talking about kind of Mm. side at that point yeah yeah I think so I mean I think you could talk to any educator and they'd say the education system right now is a nightmare well I, I agree with you you should check this book called I think it's called Weapons of Mass Instruction. That's very clever. Yeah, isn't it? So it's written by John Taylor Gatto. I read like a summary of it. I did not read the whole thing. I'm not like, I'm a filmmaker. (laughs) (laughs) Not like. I struggle with reading. Yeah. So, but uh, you should check it out still. It kind of talks about. Um, It's from 2010. It talks about, here's the subtitle, A School Teacher's Journey Through the Dark World of Compulsory Schooling. Kind of hits what you're talking about, about the education system and things like that. Sure. So the last thing I really want to get to is a little bit harder and a little bit more taboo, I think. Sure. So it's great that we could encourage people to more objectively examine our political predicaments with the Muslim world, with the Jewish world, the Christian world. We can even talk about Jainism at some point. They're just not really a a factor when they're all pacifists. (laughs) Right. And people will probably be nice. I think that's probably the default thing to do Hmm. when you do feel scared or meet a stranger. Like, you're probably going to do that anyway. If people try to gain a better understanding, more than just like, oh, I've changed my perception of Muslims because I've met some of them and they're very nice and I have friends now, what what are we going to do about their perception of Islam? Because as I was alluding to earlier, on the left, people are talking about, no, there's no time and place to criticize Islam. It's a religious minority doing so is inherently racist. There's no reasonable way to critique it without strawmanning it because you might find some passages, but you don't understand it enough. And there's this other side that says we do need to be objective about it and show no special treatment because we're here to say Christianity is problematic too and whatever it might be. 
So do you think that it is reasonable? And if so, how are people going to engage with it to better understand and overcome the misconceptions they have about what the text may or may not say and what people will do or won't do as a result? All right, so your question being, is it reasonable to look at the religion of Islam critically and to explore even despite it being a minority, like Muslims being a minority in this nation? Exactly. Is it, is it acceptable? Of course. I mean, uh, me as a Muslim, I, I look at my, I look at the Quran, I look at all of it critically. In fact, the Quran challenges people to look at its verses and, and to try to, you know, find fallacies and things in it like that. So if I, I say, of course, it's acceptable. And like, I, I kind of don't really don't like the attitude from the left that we're, you know, I'm a minority or something. In fact, I'm not a minority. I belong to the second largest religious group on the planet and the number one fastest growing one. It's maybe in minority here, but definitely not in the world. And uh, I, I don't like being treated like as a, as a coattail on issues as well. So I, yeah, I, I totally disagree against that. Oh, you can't criticize them. You can't say anything wrong. Things that, you know, echoing things that you said from that view. Um, I definitely think, yeah, let's, let's look at this religion. If you, if you want to, if you want to claim said thing about Islam, okay, let's, uh, let's actually look at your claim and let's talk to someone who claims differently and this is just scholarly you know i think we've lost the ability to debate about things in this country to have just like a dialogue that doesn't happen anymore people are just on social media yelling at each other like what you and me are having is like great like i'm getting like you know great feelings talking to you right here right now kelly i'm learning a lot i'm, I'm i feel really tr like i trust you a ton like, I, I just speaking my mind, I'm not worried about whatever comes after, like, and I'm risking all that so I can learn more so I can come closer to the truth. And I think, like, why treat Islam, that topic differently? I think there's a lot of things Muslims are doing really, really wrong. And I think there's a lot of things Muslims are doing really, really right. So, let, yeah, let's look at what everyone's doing. Let's look at what Muslims are doing. Let's say for me, a, a really easy issue for me to hit is like forced marriages. Like that's, that's messed up to me. That's, that's something we should openly criticize and like not be shy from being like, oh, you know, we can't criticize them. They're a minority. Uh, this uh, father's forcing his daughter basically to um, basically selling her to another family. Like why, why can't we criticize that? And like Muslims do do that, they do. I'm not shying away from that. There's not a, not a lot of them, not most of them, but there's some who think that's an okay thing. And uh, I, I hate that. My emotions aside though, <laughs> yeah, it's a long story short, Kelly. Yeah, let's, let's look at it in that light. Let's look at it critically. I'm all for it. Sure, so, and that is interesting because it is such a difficult dichotomy of trying to raise awareness about how xenophobic we are without thinking about it and creating and fighting for those First Amendment protections and uh, fighting against discrimination and um, airport security and whatever other bullshit is going on. <laughs> yeah. It just, and then at the same time, be like, well, how much and to what degree can I say I find any of these passages morally repugnant? 
And to what degree can I say that it's reasonable to expect people not to follow them when I'm not very much in tune with the Arab world and what goes on and what they do and you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So what would you say if someone comes along and they're like, well, I don't like arranged marriage or some of the Muslim countries' views of punishment like Sharia law or punishments for homosexuality or something like that that personally affects them or someone they know? And what do you say to that person? What do I say to that person if they, they're saying they don't agree with those things or they just don't understand or they're, they're vehemently against it, things like that? They're not only against it, but they're wondering how they can begin to separate Islam as an institution and reconciling how they feel about it and the people who subscribe to it with the textual elements that they disregard. It's, uh, it's not easy. I mean, even with, I think I just begin to explain, hey, like, even Muslims are not all on the same page about this. Like, if you're in tune to any of the Muslim communities, not just here in the United States, but abroad, like a huge thing for Muslims, it's like scholars, right? They're kind of like celebrities. People go to listen to them. Um, they, they tour cities and speak and things like that. And like their household names, like Omar Suleiman, Hamza Yusuf. Um, like if I, if I mention these in a Muslim household, people know them like they're celebrities. And not, not in like a, uh, what's the word? Vanity way. Is that, is that a correct English? <laughs> a vain not way. in a vain way. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> not in a vain way they're celebrities, but like, that's how important like studying the religion is for devout Muslims is that uh, you, you just know these names. And so like even these guys, some even belonging to the same like parties or schools of thought have disagreements on a lot of these issues. Like for example, punishment for gays. I know a scholar that I agree with on certain issues, but I disagree with like, you know, his execution of that punishment, which is like, he, he is saying, look, the Quran is clear, it's simple. It says, you know, that the punishment for the, the act of, you know, man on man sex is with, with four Muslim witnesses is death. And it has to be, you know, in the Muslim country, it has to be carried out. Uh, but in, you know, in the non-Muslim countries, it may be different. So, and you'll have schol other scholars saying, um, well, that rule wasn't really meant to be implied because it's impossible for, for Muslim witnesses to watch such an act because they wouldn't be watching if they're Muslim, stuff like that. So like, there's so many uh, schools of thought on it. And that's like a duty for each Muslim to really dig into. And if someone came up to me and, you know, like for that issue specifically, the, the punishment for the act of homosexuality, I'd be like, hey, you know, these are, these are different opinions. And they're like Muslim scholars are arguing within themselves about it, like really, really hard. It's like, it's like the big, the big scoop, it, juicy drama kind of argument. So <laughs> people are into it. So that's, yeah, that's kind of, um, that's what I'd show them. Like, hey, we're, there's no clear answer right now. We're, we're all trying to figure things out. Maybe clear to some people, maybe clear to others, but 
again, Muslims being so the so such a diverse group of people, we're all coming from different culture, background, uh, countries, different practices, things like that. It's hard to like in Christianity or Catholicism, at least if the Pope says, like, if you do this, you're not Catholic, like it's clear and cut because he has that authority. Islam has actually zero religious authority. You can't say, like, even scholars who studied their whole lives, you can't say this scholar's opinion is more valid over this newly convert's opinion because there's no religious authority in, in Islam. So it's complex, Kelly. That's, that's what I try to show. And uh, all of that should be critically analyzed. I, I'm not going to ever shy away from that. <laughs> Definitely. And that's what we just keep arriving at. It's very complex. Yes, <laughs> it's very complex. I really just need that button. I just need some kind of like button with a bunch of sound effects. And <laughs> you get a soundboard. Yeah. <laughs> and then the can, I mean, I can save so much time. I can make like 10 minute episodes and stuff. That kind of horn. It's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> but you know, it, it, it is complicated. But talking about it like this is what we all need to be doing instead of arguing on Facebook about it or whatever. Just like going to people, just speaking our minds, exploring with each other. I've definitely learned a lot talking to you right now in this in our short conversation here. I have as well. And I have broached that social media subject with a few other guests. And I am, of course, of the opinion that it's so nice to shout into the void and people just need to deal with it. Or... <laughs> Right. But I also concede that this format is way better. And I, I realized that even in my first episode that we're getting so much further than people seeing something and just not saying anything about it and everyone around them. Although realizing, well, all the people I know that they know are seeing this and then not saying anything about it. And it's just this like very controversial statement that just is like exploding through your newsfeed. It's like sandwiched between two pictures of cats or something. <laughs> yeah, that's basically my feed now, just cats. Yeah, so I've certainly branded myself as a true spice lord on the internet, but this is this is better and I wouldn't regret this for a minute or ever recommend my Facebook feed over this. So, there's a point <laughs> you made there. <laughs> I haven't seen your Facebook feed in a while. I've been I've been off. I've been social media fasting. I only do messages now. That's good. I'm doing more of that since I have this outlet. I'm, I'm getting it out elsewhere now. That's good. Yeah, discussions are nice. We, we need to, I'm not going to blame it all on technology, but we need to reclaim the ability to just talk about different things, just, or things we differ upon, or just that, or just, just listening, just practicing that skill. We, we've lost it, I think, as, as a country. Agreed. Well, Abdullah, I think that you have the perfect new writing project for the spicy Islam drama of what does this mean? And you can do One Tree Muslim or something and really get <laughs> yeah. to the bottom of some of these <laughs> controversial issues. And it, you have your own soap opera about it. I will watch it. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely hitting that Kickstarter. So, nice. yeah, I think that we really have a hit on our hands. <laughs> we do we do at the end uh it's just all complicated and the movie ends abruptly and very very horribly <laughs> yeah i mean even better a series where every episode ends with like some voice of god narration that it's complicated <laughs>
yeah that would uh that would just piss everyone off so i'm down <laughs> for that yeah because it's too much like real life and it already has that effect so <laughs> yeah there you go well Abdullah, i want to thank you for coming on today i learned a lot as well really enjoying this and really enjoying the series so thanks for sharing so candidly and honestly and i hope that you will join us for our eventual recap episode at the end of the year to see how 2020 finishes for you sure yeah i'm uh i feel like this november will be the climax of the uh of the year but i could be wrong you know there could be a you know as we say the uh like the last act twist at the end of the of the film if we have to make this year film but we'll see we'll see yeah i'm sure uh there's an m night twist about godzilla like taking over america <laughs> or something okay kelly thank you so much for for listening to me and having such a nice conversation absolutely you take care abdullah you too ladies and gentlemen that will conclude episode four I want to thank Abdullah again for coming on the show and having a really great conversation. I also would like to shout out an organization called UNHCR, which is the UN Refugee Agency. You can find out more about them at unhcr.org. What they do is they help refugees around the world with their various needs. It's important and eye-opening to see just how much goes into this, because after all, no matter what you think of anyone's religion, no one chooses to be displaced. And that's going to do it for our show. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll see us on the next one. Stay safe. Get the mask on.